We're back for another Peaky Podcast episode. Welcome into By Order of the Peaky Blinders. I'm Daniel Gilman, joined by my bloody mate, Josh Levy. If you haven't listened to the Season 1, Episode 1 pod, go check that out. Come back. We're going to be here waiting for you exactly when you pause it, because now you're listening to Season 1, Episode 2 of the BBC Netflix drama. We laid everything out for you Peaky Heads in the pilot. Now it's time to really get cracking with fun facts and furthering this exceptional plot. Josh, you're binge-watching the show for the first time. I am continually amazed by how good this show is. Are you having a good time? I'm having a great time. I had a tremendous time doing episode one with you guys. As Daniel said in the first episode, I am binge-watching this episode en route to catch up with series five, as Daniel will explain. And I love every single second of it. I am hooked, and I'm ready to dive into episode two. Yeah, I have no doubt we're going to be catching up to the series or season five, however you want to call it. BBC calls them series, so this is really series one, episode two for this podcast. But it debuts on August 25th on BBC One. In America, it'll probably come out the first week of October. Nonetheless, we'll have all of you guys, whether you're here in the States or across the pond, all prepared for this fantastic show. Before we jump into the episode, I want you to take a minute and go like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash peakypodcast. Follow us on Twitter at by order of Peaky and mash that subscribe or follow button. You can send us feedback. We already got some feedback. So if you want to continue piling it on, email us at bootpeakyblinders at gmail.com or message us on Twitter or Facebook like these two lads did. We have two corrections. Now, Josh, I knew... Uh, I knew there'd be one or two mistakes. I didn't know we'd have so uh, so many people jumping at the bit, but I love it right away. Yeah, uh, apparently we mispronounced Mr. Murphy's name a couple times, so we're sorry for that. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We really appreciate any feedback. We really want feedback, so don't be afraid. Yeah, I love Tommy Shelby, and you know we called it, we said Chillian maybe a few times. Danny in Florida says that we should be calling it Killian. So Killian Murphy, the fantastic actor, but Liam in Lancashire over at the UK says it's Cillian with an S. So we can't promise that this will be the last mistake. Now at least we know we have two options for our pronunciation of Mr. Murphy. I'm probably going to go with Killian, but luckily we have all of you guys to keep us on our toes. Josh, we're going to start this episode off with a little bit of trivia. Let's have some fun. Do you, Josh, or does anyone at home know why they're called the Peaky Blinders? Because this is based off of kind of true events. These are these are real gangsters, real bookmakers from back in the early 20th century. So I'm going to go ahead and say it has to do something with a horse because blinders, you know, is usually it's a, it's a horse term. They, they got their, their eyes set forward, but I'm going to guess that I'm 100% wrong. Ooh, you know, I, I like the guess. You know, I do like the guess. Unfortunately, you are 100% wrong. Peak or peaky is for the brim of the hat. So those hats were called peaky. The men who wore that hat kind of called peaks or peakies. And then blinders were the term for handsome men over in the uh, south of England in the early 1900s. So the peaky blinders were any bookmakers that wore that hat in the earliest, I don't know, 20th century, you want to call that, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. In fact, the showrunner, Stephen Knight, his mom was a book runner. We'll talk a little bit more about that. His dad was the nephew of bookmakers, and they were known as Peaky Blinders. So we found out that all of them, all bookmakers there in the uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, were known as Peaky Blinders. If you guys have any fun facts for us, make sure to write it in. We'll include it in the next podcast. This episode, as I mentioned, was written by Stephen Knight, who created this fantastic show, directed by Otto Bathurst, who directed the first three episodes, Josh, and then never was heard from again. Well... Actually, until he directed the recent Robin Hood movie last year with Jamie Foxx and Taron Egerton. A bit of a flop, but the only real notable IMDb next to uh, Otto Bathurst, as well as uh, a Black Mirror episode that maybe we'll talk about a little bit next episode because Otto directs the first three. The little blurb that goes with this episode here in the, uh, whether you're watching it on Netflix or BBC, it's got a little description 
and I'm going to read the descriptions for you guys. I don't recommend reading these before the episodes because they have a little bit of information. It says, Thomas provokes a local kingpin by fixing a horse race and starts a war with a gypsy family. Inspector Campbell carries out a vicious raid. That covers quite a lot, Josh. Yeah, I really like how the show and other shows, you know, give these blurbs, but they could be spoilers. A lot of times, especially when I watch Game of Thrones, I did not want to go near these descriptions because why the hell would I want to know what's happening in the episode if I'm trying to be surprised? Exactly. I mean, I don't need we know that we're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of arguments. We know we're going to get some tension, so let's jump right in. Episode 2, labeled as so. Starts with a gorgeous England landscape. You can see the green grass and trees everywhere. It's definitely not winter. A car is coming down the road. That uh, red right hand beautiful melody starts to play. And you see the Shelby brothers headed to this circus looking area. Nestled up literally on a hill. Gorgeous green grass, blue sky. It's uh, overlooking a creek. And down below the circus... You see the Shelbys riding up. It looks like what uh, early American settlements might look like with a lot of tents, but it, it's like a mix between that and the state fair because there's carousels and shit, and we find out, Josh, that it's the home of the Lees, a bunch of gypsies. This scene was a, a huge difference from the first episode because we're in a completely different environment. We see the Lee family, and they're referred to as a bunch of fucking gypsies, and the Lees have a lot to offer to Tommy. Arthur wants to go to the fair. He was promised to go to the fair. He sounds like a whining four-year-old. But before Arthur and John can go to the fair, Tommy's got a little bit of business. It's wild business. It's risky business. And he's wagering his car, his nice black car, on a coin flip with a new character we meet called Johnny Dogs. I like Johnny Dogs. Johnny Dogs is wagering his horse against... The Shelby's car in a game called Two Up. How about that game, Josh? Two Up. Luckily, Tommy wins, but would you ever wager anything in a game called Two Up? It seems like a game you would just play with your friends, you know, just hanging out. Yeah, yeah, let's let's just play Two Up. But, you know, when you're wagering the family car, it seems a little bit risky. So I'm, uh, you know, Tommy's confident, but th- th- that was a little much for me. I'm hoping we can get some uh, clarification from our friends from across the pond. We've got a lot of... Listeners over there, I love it. If you guys have ever played this game, because all it looks like, maybe if they were both tails, Johnny Dogs wins. And if they were both heads, Tommy wins. And if they were one or the other, you do it again. Because they were both heads, Tommy won. But Arthur was confused and thought that Johnny Dogs won because Tommy handed him the keys to the car. But Tommy's like, relax, Arthur, relax. I told Johnny I would give him a ride if I won the horse. Yeah, I hear Arthur convinced me even that they were losing the car. But without a hesitation, without any flinch, Tommy tells Arthur to calm down, as we see a lot, as Arthur is quick to judge what's going on. And he just, you know, gave gave Johnny Dog just a little spin in just a little spin in the whip. Just just a little ride around the block. So now we meet the Lees and we see a couple Lees laughing at Arthur's expense. So that kind of leads to a little bit of bad blood here for Tommy and company. Johnny Dogs tries to ease the tension here, and this is the beginning of a picture. We're going to start to learn more about this Shelby family as the next few episodes come along, especially their gypsy roots, because Johnny Dogs just kept yelling, his granddad was a king, his granddad was a king, it's okay, don't fight. So I wonder what he means by that. You know, He obviously wasn't the king of England. Was he a, a gypsy king? Because I don't think they would respect it if it was otherwise, and we do know that Tommy has those gypsy backgrounds. Yeah, this is also something that's just a little confusing, and I'm sure we'll find out later on in the show. But it it plants a seed in, in the in the audience's mind about what this could mean, what this could possibly mean. We've seen a lot of the Shelby family referred to as not in a sense of not deserving their their title and their stature. So it could be because they have gypsy roots, and everyone frowns upon the gypsies in, in, in this environment. So something to look out for for sure. I watch with subtitles here because I have to write down so many of the quotes, and it says that they're speaking Romany, which I might be mispronouncing, but I did Google it, and it's the language of gypsies, so it won't be the last you hear of the uh, Romany or Romani, because right now, right here, we get a uh, a bit of a big mistake from one of the Lee brothers, Josh, because he crosses the line. He crosses the Thomas Shelby line because he says, you know, his dad or dad, granddad might have been a king. But his mother was a diddy coy whore. 
Oh no. Woo! Oh no. You you do not say that to the Shelby clan. You do not speak of the Shelby mother in that light. And all hell breaks loose right, loose right after this, Daniel. Yeah, Tommy Boy snaps and we see the sweet use, the first use, I believe, of that razor in his peaky to slash the Lee Boy's face, maybe blinding him. Uh, I mean, there there's you got that you got that myth by saying the blinders come from that that razor. We see Arthur fighting. We see John fighting. It is a uh, a great use of slow motion here by Otto Bathurst to really you know extenuate this uh, this fight and show us the the true meanness of these Shelby boys. When I was watching the scene, I was amazed at the cinematic elements of slowing down the camera to really emphasize the strikes to, to the Lee's head and the slashes and the blood just falling out. And it really reminded me of A Clockwork Orange. And I, it was a phenomenal movie of the very slow scenes when they're slaughtering their opponents. And it just instantly reminded me of that. And I love that. I did Google what Diddy Coy was, which is what the Lee brother called Tommy and John and Arthur's mom. At least I believe they all have the same mom. I might be incorrect there. But Diddy Coy means that you have mixed Romani and non-Romani blood. So that kind of brought me right to like uh, being a like a half muggle in Harry Potter. That's what that reminded me of right there. And then uh, one more point here. At one point in this fight, and you might have to rewind and watch it if you guys want to see it at home. John makes the guy eat his own hat. I don't know what was up with that. It was just John is batshit. That's that's you know I think that's what it was. It was to tell us that John is the is the kooky one. Even though Arthur has some screws twisted off, I think John is just through and through a, a thick skull guy. It definitely cannot be comfortable to be eating your hat that has metal razor blades in it. It also is probably hard to breathe. So whatever's happening to the man on the ground there, obviously you can't see because everything's going super fast and there's. It's, it's chaos, but it definitely does not seem to be too much of a comfortable state for that person. Back in Birmingham, another dramatic entrance for the inspector, Mr. Campbell, as he leads a raid on the communist area of town, doing it at the crack of dawn. So, quote, they don't wake up because they're still so drunk from the night before. Might not be an exact quote there. I kind of just uh, went off the top of the, of the cap. And then uh, I counted, though I did pause and count, there were 18 coppers enough to really mow down these communists on the inspector's mark. They went ham, Josh. They beat up all the commoners. It was rough. We saw kids hiding. It reminded me of, of a, uh, like a Nazi Germany raid on like a Jewish ghetto or something, because you're looking at all these people and they are just getting their skulls bashed in. I mean, they're communists, but still. And the inspector at the beginning of this scene, I mean, he gives his little monologue to, to the men. And I'm pretty sure he says something along the lines of when the beer turns into piss in the morning and it's just kind of like, okay, geez, he's not playing around here. And there's no one in the street. So it's got to be at the crack of dawn. And he just leads the brigade and they start going. Of course, Ada and Freddie are fookin' because when aren't they? And Freddie even asks when he hears the knocking and hears the banging, he's like, are you sure your brothers are at the fair? So it, it's clear that Freddy, as much as he wants to be a badass, is still very scared of Tommy and his brothers. But the two of them escape. However, however, this is a big one, Ada does drop her iron tablet prescription slip that is found by the head coppa. It has her name on it, and there's a, there's a good chance we're going to be talking about this down the road, especially in this episode. But first, we're going to move locations and head over to the church, where Inspector Campbell... And Miss Aunt Polly meet for the first time as Sam Neill and Helen McCrory, just 10 standing ovations. I, the two of them are fantastic. There were two of the big headline names coming into this series. We knew Sam Neill from Jurassic Park. Helen McCrory has been fantastic among different British dramas in the past decade or so. So then when we see them finally go at it, Josh, it felt like one of those magical scenes that you can put up for an award. You know, Sam slash Inspector Campbell gets a couple remarks in about who she's lighting candles for. Polly snaps right back with some truth that the, the boys at the garrison that were killed in the war. Polly gets a nice dig in, not the first, not the last, about the inspector not serving in France. 
And then the inspector pushes up against her to try to get physical and show that he means business looking for these guns. And Polly gives him a kiss. She, she does not shy away from it. She goes right for it. And then he would not be happy. He takes some handkerchief, wipes his mouth, acting like he doesn't like it. But I'm going to speculate that he liked it because, you know, I don't think the inspector is getting, is getting too much at this time. You know, he's, he's stressed out, you know, whatever. But I also, side note, does, doesn't the inspector look like the Pringles guy? Or is that just me? <laughs> I can see a little bit. To be honest, I, pr- I just recently saw Jurassic Park, so I can't not see him as this this American young stud who is now like an old Irish guy on the show. So he will forever just be those two guys. But I could I could see it. I could see it a little bit. He looks like the Pringles guy, a mixture of the Pringles guy and Mike D'Antoni. You know, kind of like kind of like a cross cross mix of those. That's that's just something that popped my mind. I, it, it's been really bothering me. I had to get it off my chest. I'm sure there's a some sort of Premier League coach that reminds them of that. Mike D'Antoni is is an American sports reference. Um, but if you want to Google him and see if Josh is correct, go ahead. All we have left in this scene is uh, the cops raiding the church, trying to look for those guns, and then finally, Inspector Campbell shows that he knows who's on top, and he asks for the leader, and then he specifies. He says, and by the leader, I mean I want to meet Tommy. And he gives Polly a time and a place as we see the inspector. The next scene shows the inspector's not dumb because it was told among all of the commoners in the town as the coppers raided every pub but the garrison and it was uh, it was rumored that Arthur gave them the right away and that they went to the fair, the blinders did, to give room for the coppers to break in and smash some communist skulls. It just, it, it looks like that the, the Peaky Blinders might be working with the Crown and they're clearly not, but they've got all of the uh, the commoners who look up to them like they're the kings of the town, making them look like they're snitches. So now we, we get to this big table, Josh, where they're drinking beer from this bucket. They're like dunking the, the mugs into the bucket, filling up the beer. It, it's basically a throwaway point, but I just, I want to dunk my cup into a pail of beer, sit around the table with a loosely hanging toothpick from my lip, and I want to be a peaky fucking blinder. That's what makes the show so good to me, Josh. It makes you want to be there. It makes everyone want to be either Polly or Tommy. It, it You just want to be a peaky blinder so badly. You want to be in that environment. The pubs are just an electric atmosphere. It just seems like so much fun. Everyone's having a good time. The beer looks delicious. The fattest mugs you can think of. Those those are those are a, those are a healthy serving size of of. Of, of beer and, and I agree it seems like you just want to be there you know everyone you know it's just has has a lot of masculinity and power and it's, it's, it's it seems like it's a great place to be if you're on the right side we do know that one of the Shelby's is kind of on the wrong side right now so Tommy and Paul have a one-on-one when the rest of the brothers leave he asks her where Ada's been sleeping it was like a bit of a conspicuous comment because he's you know where the cop is looking for Ada and then Polly says she was sleeping. Tommy's like, where was she sleeping? And I feel like he has to know something's going on. She might be sleeping behind enemy territories with Tommy knowing now. And then Tommy says he's not going to meet with the inspector just yet. He wants to deliver a blow to get back on offense. Right. And he says verbatim, you don't parlay when you're on the back foot. And this is something just, it's not a parlay in betting terms. This is a parlay which basically means a conversation. It's it's like a meeting of the minds before something were to happen. So he doesn't want to meet with the inspector when he's kind of on the back foot. He, he, he wants to deliver a blow. And so, boy, oh boy, does Tommy Shelby have a blow. And so cue the white stripes as the band starts playing, and the next thing we see is little old Finn snagging the photo of the king from the garrison, saying, we're having a fire. And so what they're going to do is they're going to go town by town or area by area and pay two bob for a picture of the king for a little fire on Watery Lane. And Finn, I mean Finn, like Finn can't be what, more than nine, eight, nine years old this time, ten years old? I mean Finn just goes right in, right in, grabs the photo of the king, and they're like, what are you doing? And Finn's t- what? There's, there's going to be a fire. And it's just, you're like, wow, even this kid is going to get into get into the rubble? So... The Shelby's in all shapes and sizes are going to be a part of things. 
It feels like this fire is an emotional reaction from Tommy and the gang to try to get back on him. But at the end of the day, man, this guy is so smart. We get to see Tommy's massive brain. Because what he does, and he does it a a hundred years before it became a popular thing, he invites a journalist from the local newspaper and tries to take advantage of the media here. He feeds him a story about Small Heath getting the raw end from the crown. So what he's doing, all he's simply doing, is he doesn't want his beautiful, beloved king to see what's going on. So he's going to take his photos off the wall, burn them for a bit of an alarm, and then just, just casually mentions, you know, this is in no capacity. I'm just, you know, I'm a war hero. We learn that he fought at the Somme, and then uh, he gets asked why he's burning them. And let's get another Tommy, Josh. What, what did Tommy say? Tommy, very forthright, says, we went through hell for our king, walked through the flames of war, write all this down, and now we're being attacked in our own homes. And, and Tommy knows exactly what he's saying and wh- which people are going to hear his message. So this is a very deliberate attempt to get to the people in power. And some scenes we get like a quick cut away, not this one. This one we get a nice five, six second frame out and we get to see the full image of Tommy standing there in front of this massive bonfire. And then in the background you see the gorgeous, and I say gorgeous, it's, it's subjective. You know, I think it's so majestic to see all of these burning steel mills or whatever you want to call it, you know, all of the, the coal burning and all the fire going from corner to corner. It's just the scenery in this is just remarkable. And I'm not someone who can really, you know, I'm not an expert in this stuff. I, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big guy. I didn't grow around around these things. So I don't really even 100% know what is being burned or what they're doing. I don't know if they're, if they're trying to shape metal or, you know, being a blacksmith, I have no idea. All I know is that it's cool um, and everyone's filled with a little bit of ash. When, I, when I've gone through other episodes in the season, I, I, I really noticed this as well. And so when I did my rewatch of this episode and I saw it again, I, I love the imagery. It kind of shows the time of the show and it shows like what the people are doing and, and, and all the working men and how it's, you know, that's where all the ash comes from. So I think Stephen Knight really tries to emphasize that in between scenes. And there's just little tiny minute details that actually make a difference in explaining the underlying environment of people around the Shelbys. So all we know about that fire is that it took place at night. Sometime later that night, don't know how much later, it's about midnight now. And Tommy's plan is well into fruition because the inspector, who is still at his office before midnight, I mean, he burns that oil. He gets a call. It's Winston Churchill. And that man is just reaming our guy, Chester Campbell. He gets just taken apart. Winston Churchill says that he gets every controversial wire before it is posted. And this one is not looking good for the king. So he's going to snuff it. But he wants to make sure that the light of day never gets seen from these burning king fire remains or anything around it, Josh. I mean, it's it feels like a little bit of a North Korea mixed in with old time London, but I guess this is how things went back then. Churchill, you, you see immediately what his agenda is. And he, I don't know if he has uh, justice in mind or whether or not he has saving his own ass in mind. And he reiterates, he doesn't want that if, because Chief Inspector Campbell says he'll go make all the arrests. He'll, he'll go arrest who is in charge. And he says, I don't want any arrests. There'll be no arrests because if there's arrests, there'll be trials. And if there's trials, then there'll be in the newspaper and it'll just be a big mess. Essentially, it'll be a clusterfuck. But Inspector Campbell says, okay, okay, okay. And Churchill knows exactly who's in charge. Yeah, I think that's, that's a big thing to remember. Like if you're asking, you know, why is this so unrealistic? Why don't they just arrest all of the Peaky Blinders every time they do something illegal? This is why. Because he was only sent to get the guns, he is clearly being instructed by Winston Churchill to not arrest anyone, not put anything on the record, especially not a war hero. Also something that I I noticed just on my rewatch, Inspector Campbell takes a sip of water, and I think this is the only time I've seen someone not drinking beer or whiskey. Just something very important to note, because we got some degen alcoholics here. And I, I mean, it, it could be vodka, it could be white rum or something, but it looks like water, and I was, sh- I was shook, Daniel. Now we see someone who's not allowed to drink any more, uh, any more liquor, because we get to find out that Polly's mystic powers are legit. She's a gypsy, she's got powers, 
and we see it here when Ada hilariously walks us through her morning routine because Polly says, you know, what have you been doing? Why are you coming down so late? And Ada's like, I couldn't sleep well, and then I did this, and then I had that, and then I had a dream about this, and now I'm hungry, and now I'm eating. And <laughs> Ada gets like two bites in to what is just a delicious-looking jam on white bread sandwich. It, it just looks fantastic. And all of a sudden, Polly like freaks out, grabs Ada, feels her up. <laughs> very forcefully. I will say very forcefully. She was, she was, she was not uh, bashful about it. The boobs might be feeling a little big, and uh, turns out that Ada is late. She is, uh, she's not one week late. She's not two weeks late. She's like five, six, or seven weeks late. And uh, hopefully, I'll say it right now, hopefully the baby's hair is better than its father's. I mean, God God bless the baby if, if, she, if he or she has Freddie's haircut. And Ada, Ada's, Ada's haircut isn't looking too, too hot either. I'm not, I'm, not into, I'm, I'm not into that look, but that's just a personal thing. To each their own, I just said in episode one, but I agree. And we get a throwaway line here that Ada thinks she's late because it's a lack of iron. And she did get some tablets, which is the prescription slip that the Kappa's got a hold of at Freddy's place. Now, Polly, I kind of thought Polly would know who the father was. I don't know. I just guess her powers only work for identifying the pregnancy itself. So they go, they find out that she is indeed pregnant by some backdoor doctor in a part of town where Polly does not want to be seen, but Ada's not having it. In the middle of this dark, grimy street, our two woman protagonists duke it out. Polly says whoever it should, whoever it is should marry her, but Polly does not think that whoever it is is going to come back once Ada reveals that she doesn't even know where Freddie is. And you could tell Polly, I don't think Polly wants to hold on to this baby. So now, uh, now we move over and take a look at Uncle Charlie. From Aunt Polly to Uncle Charlie, Charlie Strong, Mr. Pessimist, is nagging Tommy, something that he would do throughout this episode. He's not happy about this new horse that Tommy got from the Lees in exchange for a little bit of trouble. Charlie thinks it'll lead to trouble, and what does it do? It leads to trouble, because even though this horse is nice, even though Tommy likes it, Charlie takes out a bullet that he is uh, transporting in an effort to show Tommy that the Lees are declaring war against the Shelbys. It has Thomas Shelby's name etched on it. I think it just says Shelby or Tommy. I think it just says Tommy on the bullet. And it is some badass. That is some Al Capone stuff right there, writing your name on a bullet and sending it to your uh, enemy. And it's uh, Josh, it's clear that Tommy's losing friends left and right. Can't be a good thing to have your name etched into a bullet, if uh, if I had to guess, if I was a betting man. But we're going to see what's about to happen. Charlie says it perfectly. He goes, it's Thomas Shelby against the whole bloody world, right? Tommy's walking down the street now with that horse that we just talked about. The horse freaks out when a little bit of uh, fire bursts out near it. And we can tell this horse is uh, its not the uh, the sturdiest. It's not the most mentally stable and Tommy shows his horse-whispering powers here as he settles down the horse with an old saying from France that the sounds are just trombones and tubas, all a part of the band, all a bunch of noise. As now we see Grace admiring Tommy walking down with the horse, and then something weird happens. It looks like Grace intentionally throws this bucket of slop right in front of where Tommy and the horse are walking, which prompts Tommy to kind of look at her saying, all right, I, I kind of could tell that was on purpose. Grace introduces herself, but come on. The great Thomas Shelby's already going to know who you are. Like, come on, girl. And Grace, what does she want, Josh? She wants singing just one night a week. And Tommy doesn't even answer her. All Tommy says is, were you a, a rich girl that grew up around horses? Why don't you come with me to the horse races and uh, I'll pay you to dress up with me and come to the races. And boom! The first date is set, Josh. There is a little bit of a money transaction, but when isn't there when a man takes a woman on a date? And there was definitely a glow in Grace's eyes that I that I that I noticed. And and at this point, at this point, you know, we are unsure of the situation at hand. So I'm I'm going back and forth on whether or not Grace really likes it or not. So something to point out. Meanwhile, Monahan Boy is taking heavy action as expected, and as expected. He wins those first two races and then loses the third as the Shelbys cash out big time at Kempton. 
Also, I wanted to note, we do see all those kids who are a huge help to the bookmakers because it wasn't 100% legal for them to be working out in the streets. I mentioned that the creator, Stephen Knight's mom, was actually a bookies runner. Well, we see a lot of these bookies runners here around Small Heath just kind of collecting coins or picking up bets. Just more fun facts for you. We're filled with those fun facts. Now we get a scene. Tommy's walking in. Everyone's real friendly. He's nice with them. How's the kid doing? How are you? And Polly takes the uh, oxygen right out of that room by telling Tommy about the pregnancy. This, this was probably my favorite scene of the episode until we get to that final scene because Tommy does not give a shit about any of the booking going on. He takes a beeline straight to the pictures, bursts into the movie theater where Ada is just casually watching her films, her black and white music movie, whatever you want to call it, eating her popcorn. Tommy asks who it is, who the father is. I mean, she's by herself too, which I found very strange, but I mean, I guess people go 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 to see movies by themselves. But anyways, right after, right after Tommy asks, she goes, it's Freddie fucking Thorne. She does. You got ahead of yourself there because first she gives a fake name as the father, a Rudolph Valentino. So what Tommy does is Tommy leaves and I will, you know what? I'm going to defend her. Fuck that, Josh. I go to the movies by myself. I had to move out to the middle of nowhere. We haven't seen Ada with any friends. So you know what? All the power to you, girl. Go to that damn movie by yourself. But when Tommy leaves, I'm so ready for him to go meet and find this Rudolph Valentino. I thought he was going to come back with some Italian guy that, you know, said his name was Rudolph Valentino or something. But instead, he goes right into the projector room. He clicks off the movie, kicks everyone out of the theater. And what does she say, Josh? Here we go. What does she say? What does she say the father's name is? I got too excited. But she says, it's Freddie fucking Thorne. <laughs> Tommy's best mate since school. We didn't know that. Before Tommy leaves, Ada does yell, I'm a fucking Shelby too. Turn back on my fucking pictures. And that's what he does. He turns the photos back on. And she also mentions that Freddie saved his life in France. And that's something to also mention that's pretty big. It's a dig at Tommy. He's got a lot of pride. He doesn't want to be the one to, to be known as that that the commie saved his life in battle. So that's a dig if, if I've seen one. Now we find out that uh, Polly thinks Tommy is swinging above his weight, fixing that race against the knowledge of uh, Billy Kimba. So Polly is not happy. Polly does not want Tommy to be fucking with Billy Kimba. And before, uh, before we see Billy Kimba pop up again, we get this emotional scene. And so now we see a little bit of the... Uh, the romantic side of Aunt Polly as she gives a letter to Tommy from Ada to Freddie, kind of pleading with him, you're having a baby on the way, please come back. We can leave town, but whatever. I want you to come back. That's what Ada wants to say. But Tommy is uh, Tommy's a Grinch. Tommy is anti-love, doesn't think it's a good idea to be falling in love or having a baby with someone on the run, someone who's only looking at the Shelbys for guns and money to help out for his cause. So what does Tommy do? Tommy throws the letter in the furnace, nearly gets stabbed by Aunt Polly, but kind of yells saying Polly is uh, still filled with romance for someone who's had a hard life with men. And just before Polly leaves, this is an important part. Tommy also mentions that he thinks that uh, they should get rid of the baby. So now we've seen two people, both Polly and Tommy are kind of leaning to the abortion. Also, Tommy yells, you would have stabbed me with that if you knew I wasn't right. And so, because she knows he's right, he, uh, he didn't get stabbed with that poker. Now we see Polly have a, a little bit of a uh, walk out there. And we have Tommy and Campbell, because of Polly, finally meet. And Josh, this, is, this one was my favorite scenery, just because it was so perfectly ironic. Tommy and the inspector meet in this old-fashioned, high-class tea room, Far from town, out of both of their jurisdictions. It has flowery wallpaper. It has art. I mean, all this whole thing just looks funny. Tommy is even wearing this pretty, I mean, like really pretty purple striped shirt with a velvet, felty looking suit. So Campbell, what he does, he decides to uh, blow first. That first strike, he pulls out Ada's prescription slip and, uh, basically accuses Tommy of also sleeping with the communists. But Tommy casually sidesteps it, says he does not share the same sentiments as them. 
and says that it's taken care of with his sister. So right away, Tommy is ready. The two men are two powerful protagonist-antagonists. They strike a deal right here, right now, episode two, season one. Tommy's even got the pen. So get ready. Here's what the deal is. In exchange for the coppas turning a blind eye to all Peaky Blinder activities and Inspector Campbell talking to some of the higher-up policemen to leave Tommy's men alone when he ends up making that move with or on Billy Kimber to take care of that legal bookmaking. In exchange for that, Tommy will A, make sure Freddie Thorne never returns, which, uh, eh, that's going to be a little tough, and he will return the guns, making Inspector Campbell the hero, even, quote, getting him a medal maybe. But, Josh, here's the catch. The inspector will only get the guns after Tommy's moves are complete, or else they're sold to the IRA and uh, Campbell's pretty fucked. I'm a fair man. It's a fair offer. So right away, Tommy is really saying to the inspector that this is how the deal is going to go. He's a fair man. It's a fair offer. There isn't going to be any negotiation going on here. And Tommy lets the inspector know that he means business. Yeah, Tommy's got the big dick here. He set not just the second blow, but he set all the big blows. And then he gets one last dig at Campbell's lack of servitude during the war. The inspector tells Tommy he doesn't even want to shake hands. And Tommy snaps back. Why would I shake the hand of a man who didn't even fight for his country? So boom, there's the end of that big scene. And then it goes straight to this epic musical scene with the opera going... We, there's no way we're in Small Heath anymore. We've got all these fancy tea rooms. Now we've got the opera. Grace and Campbell are having their secret meeting up in the box. Kind of looked like the box where Lincoln was shot. And uh, what happens is uh, the inspector is going to give Grace a gun and basically instruct her to get close to Tommy no matter what. Tommy Shelby is now our first and last operation. And what it does, Josh, it really, uh, this is creepy because it seems like Campbell pretty much says, do anything to get close to Tommy, which uh, it looks hard for him to say, but then he has this weird comparison. It made me shiver. He says, this is like a father sending his own daughter to a whorehouse. Ugh. I, I mean, what the fuck, man? Like, this is just flat out weird. Like, you can say anything else but that, that it's compared to sending your own, his, uh, sending his own daughter to a whorehouse. I don't know any situation where a father would send her daughter to her, to a whorehouse. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, and then he's like, you know, I'm not telling you to do everything. Well, obviously you are, dude. And then the end of that scene has the dramatic opera music. It's synced up with Tommy getting high because he can't go to sleep otherwise unless Grace is singing. And uh, Tommy's having another flashback dream, which is one where... Fans, we're going to need some help here because Josh and I had some trouble depicting this one. I mean, we're seeing there's, there's someone's getting shot. They're in a mine or a cave. You know, it's during the war. Tommy's either killing a German. A German's killing Tommy. I mean, I, I can't tell. So something that I literally just thought about is so you you kind of see Danny like in a, in a brief flash. You see Danny in, in that in that cave or mine or whatever. And you kind of flash back to about 20 minutes before where Ada, you know, shouts out, he saved your fucking life during the war. And I don't know, maybe it could be Freddie saving Tommy's life because we do see Tommy struggling and kind of was reminded of that scene. So I don't know, but it's pretty, and I think Stephen Knight does this on purpose. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of the long night episode in the Game of Thrones. I know we've been referencing Game of Thrones a lot, but it, it's the best show ever. It's okay. The, the best show on television. So we're, we're going to compare the, the, the good aspects of a show to Game of Thrones. But in the long night, people compare, uh, were, were complaining that they couldn't see anything. But I think that the, the, that the directors did that on purpose to add to the element and to the feel so that you feel that you're actually there. And so here we can't really see what's going on. And it makes us feel like we're actually in that cave with Tommy and with Danny and with possibly Freddie. So... Really powerful scene there. Then it starts raining. It's hard to see as well. Tommy wakes up from his nightmare. He's staring at this ugly blue and white wallpaper 
which is going to bring in some prominence as we move on. But this is a spoiler-free podcast. So Curly comes running, yelling, tries to wake Tommy up. Tommy's already awake. It's an emergency, and oh, something is wrong with this new white horse and her hoof. Curly says it's a curse from the Lees. He's seen it a few times. You can't undo it. The horse is going to die. And uh, Tommy has to put down this unnamed beauty. What's... What's your reaction to this emotional scene? Just another powerful scene, and you can see it on Tommy's face, just like I mentioned in episode one, where you can see his like cheekbones clenching up, and he's kind of like holding back tears a little bit and just puts the horse out of its misery. And I know that in a lot of uh, television shows, they like to use the white horse as a symbolic reference, as like the pale white mare whose, whose name was Death. And so I'm not sure if Stephen Knight is trying to use that depiction, to kind of, you know, as a as a broader symbolism, but I think that it kind of has, it's open to interpretation, and it's not something that needs explanation. Then it goes to our final scene, where Tommy goes straight to the garrison, Grace is closing up, and it's, uh, I think this is a good emotional scene for Tommy, and, you know, this isn't our final scene, but it's it's going to get to our final act in this in this episode because it really closes out here strong tommy tommy shows his emotion here with grace all he wants is a drink the bar is closed grace wants to leave tommy says you think i came here to drink alone i wanted company and this is that iconic look you're talking about that jawline is a 10 out of 10 tommy's drenched he's drinking i've seen a hundred memes with this look with tommy sitting back against the chair the hair is disheveled Grace asks about the horse. Tommy makes some remark about the horse looking at him wrong, so he had to shoot him. And uh, he says he got used to seeing men die in France, but he never got used to seeing horses die. I think uh, I think we learned a lot about Tommy, especially when Grace made that remark about, all right, I guess we'll have singing now because I almost got you to smile. Right, and i I think Tommy has a connection to horses in general and I, and you know maybe this horse in general, but because the horse is kind of symbolic of the family operation, and I don't know if maybe we'll see something down the line uh of a story or just his love for horses or or whatnot, but it is the family operation they do rely on these horses, and yeah, he kind of has that serious stern look somehow still dashing. Even with the most disheveled look, he just had to kill a freaking horse, man. Like, what, what, what the hell? So, I mean, if Grace was talking to me, that would that would uh, lift my spirits a little bit. Especially, she was gonna she was gonna sing for me. Oh, and he is. I mean, he's he's a babe. He really is, Tommy Shelby. Grace does end up telling Tommy. He she changes the subject. Says she got a dress for Cheltenham, and Tommy says the king will be there. And she goes, King George? But no, Josh, it's not King George. Who is it? It's King Billy Kimba and all his men. And Tommy reveals, furthering, that uh, he did a little bit of research into Grace. Find out that she did not work in Dublin. And uh, he basically tries to pinpoint her. And Grace gets away by stroking the ego here. Tommy's like, let me guess. You were a rich girl who was pregnant. You ran away. Your life got ruined. Grace is like, it's something I'm not proud of. Don't tell anyone. Tommy's just so happy that he's right about Ada. He's basically displacing his emotions here because he's really talking about the Ada situation. If only he really knew that Grace was uh, an active military operative for uh, the, the crown. But nonetheless, we do get to hear Grace sing. Tommy picks a sad song, and Grace warns that it'll break his heart. And this broke my heart. Tommy just goes, it's already broken, my love. And this is what I uh, I think alluded to a little bit ago. Her singing does put Tommy to sleep. Probably the first time Tommy slept without drugs since the war. Kind of like a similarity to a siren in Greek mythology. Grace has that power to just captivate you, you know, so he kind of, you know, just relaxes for a second and kind of makes you think that he actually feels the most comfortable around her. So, so something just to keep in mind as they start to, you know, really, you know, know each other. And I forgot about this scene. We, we go back to the garrison, but first we quickly head to the train station. And this is one that I'm torn on and I'd love to get some, some feedback, you know, email us, message us something. 
because Freddy is there waiting for Ada and Polly, but Ada and Polly headed to the train station not expecting to see Freddy. And it turns out, it does turn out that Thomas the Grinch might have a, might have a heart after all because he gave Freddy a heads up to go grab Ada and their baby and get out of town. So what happens, Josh? Freddy proposes. Ada becomes Miss Ada Thorne. She says yes. And then as they go to jump onto the train, Freddy had this whole plan. Right when she said yes, he was going to turn and say, we're not going anywhere. This is our home. We're going to stay here. We're going to fight everyone. Tommy's going to have to deal with it. It feels like a grimy move to me, but the real question I want to know is, where were Polly and Ada going? Were they going to get that abortion? Because that's what it feels like they were going to do. I don't remember exactly. Was was this the time where Polly and Ada went to whatever doctor, woman, to see if she was pregnant or not, for sure? Yeah, that happened earlier in the episode, and that's when they had the argument. So that, so right right so i i agree i'm i'm confused uh if we can get some some feedback as as well once again we're not perfect guys we make mistakes so please 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 give us give us give us your feedback so now we go back to the garrison and here we go this is how we're gonna finish very strong john and arthur prompt tommy in their little hidden room i think it's time thomas i think it's time to get a woman and i think they're talking about grace but before they can convolute that situation further we get the bloody climax to the second episode, Josh. It's been over 50 minutes, five minutes to go, and who shows up at the pub? It's Billy Kimba. In come two elderly men with some big-ass guns. They look like they're straight from Boston. I'm telling you right now, those guys do not look British, but whatever. We're going to meet the head of the racetracks, the king, Billy Kimba. He walks in. He asks for a Shelby. He shoots a hole in the ceiling when no one responds. The pub quickly empties out via recommendation of Tommy. And Kimba sits down with the Shelbys with only a couple minutes to go in the episode. I know my heart was beating. I mean, first of all, poor commoners of this fucking town, man. Like, imagine just like you're you're having a a beer, you're drinking a glass of whiskey, and all of a sudden Billy Kimba walks in and starts shooting bullets into the ceiling and... You know, all of a sudden, your your normal day, drinking a beer, has, has, has suddenly gone awry. So th- this was another reminder that of the time we're living in and the environment that the Shelbys are living in. This had to have been the third time in two episodes that we've seen Tommy kind of sweep his arm and just kick everyone out of something. It's awesome because what we see is a little bit of disrespect once again. Billy Kimba's like, I've never heard of you guys, and then I did hear of you. You were a, quote, Diddy Coy Razor Gang. There's that word Diddy Coy again. And uh, now that they fixed the race, he's heard of them, and he's not happy because Billy Kimba fixes races. Him and his uh, his accountant, his advisor, look like a nice uh, young Jewish boy. And uh, and Kimba's Kimba's not happy about anything. He goes, quote, I'm Billy Kimba. I run the races. I'm going to have you shot against the post. The post. He says, the post. But then we see once again, Tommy's playing chess. And before Billy leaves, Tommy flips him that bullet with his name inscribed on it from the Lees. And it turns out, who would have guessed? The Lees and the Kimba gang are in a little bit of a uh, kerfuffle as well. So they're going to team up now. Or it looks like they might. Tommy offers his help with the Lees, who are uh, robbing the racetracks, essentially, and going around spreading word that the racetracks are easy pickings. So Tommy could be uh, quite of service as gypsy help. He admits that he admires Billy Kimba, the fact that he built a legitimate business from the ground up. And then we have the test. And this is the test, Josh. This was a big, big point in the episode. This is a big point in the entire series for Mr. Tommy Shelby, because... Thomas says he wants to work with him, but Billy's like, fuck working with me. You're going to work for me. And what he does is he flips a coin. It falls on the ground. And this is intense. He makes the leader of the Peaky Fucking Blinders pick it up. John's freaking out. Tommy tells him, hold on. And usually, in, in most shows, in most movies ever, it's just very true to humanity. And the men just use their bravado and it oversees their their good visions and their dreams and it cost them their lives by 
you know, putting their pride on the line, but Tommy is smart. Tommy sacrifices his ego, Josh. He picks up that coin. It's going to be uh, <laughs> helped to repair the ceiling. All is well in the garrison as Arthur reveals that Tommy picked a fight with the Lees on purpose, helping those out who were a little bit slow the first time. He reiterates the sentiment we heard from Polly that you cannot pick a fight. You cannot fuck with Billy fucking Kimba. And the final line of this second episode, Tommy turns around, says, get yourself a decent haircut, men. We're going to the races. Killian or Cillian, we're going to go with Killian. Killian Murphy does such a great job with this scene because I can't help but always wonder whether or not he's actually, you know, a little bit frightened by the people he's dealing with or if he's just super fucking confident with what he's doing. And here, as you said, he perfectly puts his ego aside, puts his pride aside because you know that in his head he knows what he's doing. He doesn't care what people think about him, but he's going to do the bigger thing for the bigger picture and go ahead and pick that coin up and seem like he's the lesser of the two. And he's just such a brilliant character. And Killian Murphy does such a good job of convincing the audience that he's kind of scared, but he's definitely not scared. That's for sure. And this episode, it felt like a table setter for a lot of different plots, but at the same time, it also felt like one of those odes to the main character. And Killian Murphy was really able to show his expressiveness when even the first time in the series, we got to see him be a little smitten, be happy when, when he's flirting with Grace after having such a tough night, after having those nightmares, after having to put down his beloved horse. And, uh... And, and it's it's awesome. And, and episode three is going to provide, you know, a ton more fun. We're going to be recording that for you in about a day or two. So keep an eye out for that. Episode three for this series one will be posted soon as Josh and I are binging. So you guys don't have to. We're going to make sure you're as caught up as possible for this upcoming season coming out soon. Don't forget to subscribe, follow if you like us, reach out for feedback on social media or emailing us at B-O-O-T, peakyblinders at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at By Order of Peaky and Facebook.com slash Peaky Podcast. Any last words for the fans, Josh? It's been it's been a blast so far, guys. And as I as I mentioned in the first episode, so much has happened so quickly, and we're two episodes in. And just the prowess of Stephen Knight to to introduce so many plots and so many characters so quickly. It's been awesome, and I can't wait to break down episode three. I just want to do it right now. I, I, I'm really excited. The best part about the show is that there's no dumb down episodes. They don't they don't have to just waste a week. They only have six episodes for every season, and every single episode is jam packed. So we're gonna talk to you again soon. He's Josh. I'm Daniel. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's by order of the Peaky Blinders. Past the stacks. On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. <laughs> <laughs>